welcome everybody. This is the next in our series of podcasts. This is to do with prolongation and um, money claims. In essence, if you're using English terminology, we're talking about loss and expense claims. Um, if you're using EPC terminology, we're talking about additions to the contract price. Um, we're basically talking about how you get more money if you're a contractor on projects. Um, I'm Alex Johnson. No, I'm John Fotherby. Um, so, John, last podcast, we were talking about extensions of time. So if I've secured an extension of time, I automatically get my money, don't I? Uh, not in my experience. <laughs> um, I think that this is one of the things that constantly crops up that I see. Um, people imagine there's an automatic entitlement to payment when they've got an extension of time. And it's yep. wrong. There isn't. Yeah, it is. I did know the answer to the question I was asking. I'm just yeah. for the sake of the record. Yeah, time does not equal money. Absolutely. And uh, this this surprises people sometimes, even even people that have been um, in the construction industry a, a long time. It's still surprising. And, you know, they say, what well, time doesn't automatically equal money. Well, no, I, I think contracts are sometimes to blame for this. Um, confusion because they will put together time and money claims in a way that they shouldn't really be put together. Um, I think in in the UK I quite like the the JCT forms of contract which are domestic so they're only for UK projects but when it comes to extensions of time you're clearly talking about relevant events which are certain events. When you're talking about uh, claims to additional payment you are clearly talking about um, relevant matters. Now, some of the relevant events, some of the relevant matters are the same. So, for example, a variation uh, or a, an act of prevention by the owner or employer will entitle the contractor to claim both extension of time and a payment. But it's not the same thing. Those those are two separate claims. Whereas I think, let's say, the, the FIDIC contract mixes them up a little bit more because it always talks about um, on the occurrence of a particular event. The contractor is entitled to claim extension of time and cost and profit sometimes and it all gets conflated together whereas in actual fact those are two separate claims and and there's not an automatic entitlement at all um and when it comes to um disruption claims i'll just pick up on some points that we talked about in terms of extension of time claims and we were we were talking about how in order to make successful claims you need the factual records this is also incredibly important when it comes to making claims for uh, loss and expense because those are even more difficult to prove um, and again if if parties kept the best most comprehensive forensic uh, levels of information <laughs> on a project you could quite easily with many many hours of work determine what the disruption was um, and how much how much loss it had caused but again when does that ever happen well it never does um, so John in practical terms what what do you look for when you're assessing whether disruption was caused to a project as opposed to delay well I think um, I take a lot of guidance from uh, William Ibbs's um, uh, Loss of Productivity and Construction Contracts publication, uh, which is really quite good. Um, 
I think the problem with the the loss of productivity claims, which it my experience account for probably the biggest single amount of money that's sought to be recovered. And I think just setting aside the the problems of computing the claim at the moment, I think we have to recognise that in the engineering and construction industry for EPC contractors, there can be some disruption and loss of productivity in the engineering home services uh, area. But since that's only about, you know, 8%, say, of the contract price, it doesn't amount to a massive amount of money. Compared to, say, construction, which is, you know, probably in the order of 40% of the contract price. But the big problem, of course, is it's undertaken by subcontractors. So those records that you're talking about, insofar as, to a certain extent, prolongation, but more for the loss of productivity claims, all the information is in the hands of subcontractors. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the cute owner can can really take advantage of that situation by asking a simple question when when a contractor puts a uh, loss of productivity claim in. Well, have you paid your subcontractors, and how much did you pay them? Mm. Yeah, and that is made even more difficult to answer. Because the EPC contract is normally on a lump sum arrangement. Nine times out of ten, is subcontractors on a unit price and measured quantities, remeasured yep. from AFC documents. So there is a disconnect between the commercial basis of the EPC contract and the assumptions that the contractor took for construction when he put his EPC price in, compared with the agreement with the subcontractors uh, way after the EPC contract date mm. uh, to do that construction work. So it becomes a very, very complicated um, situation to deal with. And I think yeah. this is one of the reasons why these loss of productivity claims fail. So that's the first problem. How do we get our hands on the the things that you keep going on about, which are the records yeah. and the fundamental? Okay. And you can conjure up something if you're a contractor by saying this is the labour that we uh, thought we would have on the job and so on and so forth. But it proves nothing um, yeah. because it's how you utilise that labour and did you mobilise it and how was it used and what and, and so on. So IBS takes you to a number of categorised reasons for productivity. What drives productivity? And clearly... It's a split between things that the owner's responsible for, which is, he lists down quite nicely, things that the contractor's responsible for, and things like force majeure. So, again, going back to your point, you have, if you haven't got the records and the facts as to what it was and when it occurred and how it occurred, you're lost. Yeah. But from the contractor's point of view, the thing that you've got to really look at from productivity is gang uh, the, the real gang size so what labor is supposed to be deployed on a piece of work and what labor was deployed and what was the anticipated productivity mm. uh, and what is the actual productivity and why is there a difference and so often it's because there's inadequate supervision so this is another angle that you've got to look at. You've also got to think, how are the contractors being paid, the subcontractors? 
because they may, they may be getting paid by you know cubic meter or ton or whatever. Um, were they able to install that work as planned, and did you give them the information as the EPC contractor to do it? Um, and if 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 so, then the 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 uh, lack of productivity or efficiency is down to the subcontractor and it's got nothing to do with the contractor or the employer owner yeah um and linking owner events to the subcontractor not being able to perform the work as efficiently and, and as productively as they anticipated is a devil's job um, it, it, it becomes very, very difficult. And yet, I looked at a disruption claim for $30 million not long ago, and it was it was something for tiny tots. It was A minus B equals C, plus a bit of fiddling around the edges because there might have been some things that the contractor was responsible for. It fails. You can't mm. do it. So yeah. somehow you have to get access to the subcontractor's planning and actual performance. And of course, they'll want a consideration for that. If they're going to give you any information, they expect to be beneficiaries somewhere along the line. Yeah. So there's a real organization and, uh, and human element to this whole thing. Yeah. So I think, yeah. needless to say, it's very difficult to handle. Yeah, that, uh, that's absolutely right. And, and if we look at the legal side of things, um, disruption claims are renowned for being very complex and difficult to establish and they require a, a large amount of evidence and good quality evidence. Um, I'm just going to talk through the the four points that are mentioned in Keating on construction contracts on what a contractor must establish to to succeed with a disruption claim. And the first is that there was disruption of the activities and that's a question of records. The second is that the disruption was caused by a matter which attracts liability under the contract. So that's an analysis of what the events under the contract are that entitle loss and expense or additional payment, however it's phrased. Thirdly, how much disruption was caused, which you're talking about there, John, about how, how do you assess what level of productivity loss there was, for example, or how, how much prolongation cost has been incurred. And then finally, what sum is required either pursuant to the contract or as damages for its breach to recompense the contractor for the disruption. And usually a big number is put on the disruption, but it, I'm talking about in the claim, but little thought is given as to how that number will be realized when it comes to when it comes to the records. And with disruption, um, because it's all of the kind of things that you were talking about, the the closer the evidence is to, you know, what we say the coal face, the more convincing it is. So if your claim is one that's not based on the evidence and it's it's based on theory, whether it's some kind of productivity analysis, for example, or methodology, it will be less convincing than one that is based on the records. And when the courts have looked at disruption cases, the mantra is records, records, records. I think there was even a case where it, it was said that parties will learn the importance of records, the importance of records and the importance of records when it comes to disruption claims. Um, simply because you have to look at the disruption against each cause of the disruption, identify all of that separately, particularise all of that and prove it. 
and that's really difficult. Um, so we, we've talked a bit about loss of productivity. The other, I suppose, key component in most disruption claims is the prolongation element, which is, um, as we said at the outset, commonly thought of as being the flip side of the extension of time entitlement, but isn't really. Um, the prolongation costs are, are a common head of claim in a claim for disruption. And we're generally talking about, um, sometimes they're referred to as on-site preliminaries, head office overheads. It's the unavoidable costs that were associated with an extension to the contract period, um, even if there's been no change to the actual work itself. As I said before, often these are seen as the financial side of a delay claim, but that's dangerous because it doesn't mean that just because a party gets an extension of time that it automatically gets the prolongation costs. It's a separate claim, has to be proven separately. So in this in this sense, time does not equal money. And whether you can recover these prolongation costs uh, depends on what the contract says. So really, um, no, go on, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to explain the two um, two heads. Really, it's it's the on-site overheads. So those are the you know the costs associated with the labour, with the plant, uh, with the utilities being on site for a longer period of time than the contractor planned. Um, the preliminaries, if you like. Those are uh, those costs that you know depend on the time, but they don't necessarily become part of the finished works. And then the head office overheads, which are overheads that the contractor incurs off site. So the contractor's costs of running the business in relation to this project. Um, and that can be a very difficult head in itself to to prove. The the on-site overheads are generally a little bit more straightforward, but when it comes to the head office overheads, the contractor has to isolate those overheads which were purely in relation to this project and claim those and if it's possible to say that they were, they were working on a, a number of projects at any one time that that is also a very difficult aspect to this claim i think i guess the other thing is uh, alex as well it depends on what the extension of time was granted for as to whether mm. there would be any money of any kind due yeah. So if you had, for example, a force majeure where the the contract clearly says force majeure, there's no money paid for force majeure, then I guess that's what it means. Uh, there's no money. Yeah. So regardless of what records you've got or, um, you know, how you've incurred the cost, if it's somehow related, if the cost is somehow related to that force majeure, um, so you've been on site longer because of the force majeure in simple terms, then you aren't going to get any money for it. So yeah. therefore, you have to really look at what is that cause of the prolongation. And I guess this is why we separate the time extension from the money, because the two things may be completely different. Mm. Um, because yeah, the prolongation right. may be incurred earlier as a result of something else. It just so happens that force majeure shifts out the completion date, but you may have events for which the owner is responsible occurring prior to that force majeure that would give you an entitlement to some, some costs. But yeah. the two, two things are not necessarily going to be equal in terms of the period that you're looking at or the amount of money that might be recoverable. So that's why I think it is, is, this is why we have this sort of separation, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And and the most recent and extreme example of that was the onset of COVID-19 as a pandemic. Mm. And 
I lost track of the amount of pieces of advice we wrote on. Yes, you're probably entitled to extension of time for force majeure, but we can't see how you'll claim your disruption costs because pandemics or uh, force majeure were not typically events that entitle parties to payment in addition to time. Uh, and that, that was a bit of a problem for the for the COVID period. And so what we had to look to was, OK, the extension of time is probably force majeure, um, but how do we claim how do we claim the costs? And the answer was you you will not claim them as force majeure unless your contract specifically states that force majeure entitles parties to both time and money. Um, so you had to look to other events to assess whether any disruption was uh, was claimable. And generally those events where if the employer uh, acting on its own behalf decided to close the site, otherwise than in accordance with any government uh, regulations, which happened in the UK quite a lot. Or, as you say, there was another event that happened first that um, pushed the effects of the pandemic into a period where otherwise those costs wouldn't have been incurred. So uh, an example was um, a contractor that was prevented from accessing the site for six months in 2019, um, then works recommenced, then there was COVID, was able to claim some of those costs as part of the mm, prevention, yeah, not yeah. as part of the pandemic. But that was a rare situation. So that, generally speaking, um, is probably why we saw a lot of parties just agreeing something different for COVID rather than following the contract, because it tended to lead to the unfair result that the contractor was relieved from performance against the schedule, but had to swallow the costs of not being able to work. Yeah. And I've I've seen one or two situations with COVID where people have tried to um there's been some genuine change in law. Mm. But of course um it's disentangling the time effects of the COVID, the force majeure event, from the change in law event from a time impact point of view. Yeah. And then from a cost point of view, is disentangling the costs incurred attributable to force majeure, which there will be some costs, but this, the contractor bears them, of course, as you just said. Yeah. Um, uh, and and dis disentangling that to say, OK, for the change in law, the contract says the employer is liable for those costs arising from change in law. But yeah. this becomes tricky because, first of all, is it change in law or is it enactment of an existing law? <laughs> yes. Um, which is the first challenge, which is, you know, um, uh, another of the difficulties. So, again, we come back to this need for, number one, dealing with the issues when they arise. Number two, having records that are in great detail uh, of what's happening on a day by day basis, basically, because, you know, if we look at COVID and such like these things were shifting rapidly. And of course, the other complication that we've talked about previously is, um, you know, the remoteness of an event and whether, yeah. you know, if something if a factory is closed in China and the jobs in Saudi Arabia, um, is it force majeure in Saudi Arabia where the contract is and things like that? So, you yeah. know, this just gets more complicated. So I think from a, a money point of view, time extension is difficult. Yeah. But getting the money. Is a real challenge to quantify yep. it and establish the liability. 
that seems to me to be the the real problem and of course yeah. we have the other consideration don't we of concurrency which just muddies the waters further yeah that's right and and concurrency when it comes to time is is reasonably well understood and I, I think um in as much as it doesn't generally happen but when it does happen um english law has been quite straightforward in saying that well the contractor receives the benefit of the extension of time unless the contract says something different um, that's massively simplifying but when it comes to the cost there's no no equivalent uh, piece of law it's it all comes down to well you have to prove by reference to the burden of proof that the disruption costs were incurred as a result of an event that entitles you to those costs under the contract or that you incur them as damages because the, the employer breached the contract which goes to your point about um, remoteness of course John so it, it's it's very difficult when it comes to disruption um, as you were saying to to disentangle those things that um, the contractor bears the risk for compared to those things that the contractor legitimately can claim for. Yeah and I think that the the more complex the project and this sort of makes sense really i think the more complex the project the bigger the project probably if this is a lump sum turnkey uh, industrial plant type project then trying to get to those costs establishing those costs mm. that are demonstrable in line with the burden of proof obligations becomes very very difficult um, and it isn't yeah. just a matter of totting up the site costs and saying, well, it's a million million dollars a day, therefore we're 50 days late, 50 million dollars, please. Um, because you've got to, where, where's the liability sit to start with? Um, and then what were the actual costs incurred? Uh, and how were those million dollars a day made up? Yeah. Uh, into the different elements and so on and so forth. So it's it, it, if without very good records it becomes quite difficult to establish the precise entitlement uh, to uh, whether it's prolongation or loss of productivity or any other costs associated with working on site longer and and or under different conditions yeah um that that exercise uh, shouldn't be underestimated by anybody You've got to put a lot of work in to get close to the proper valuation that if yeah. you go into a dispute uh, resolution will be tested anyway. So you might as well do it, you know, as we said earlier, uh, yeah. first and right as as leave it because it is misleading as to internally in the contractor's organisation. Mm. Oh, we think we've got a claim for 50 million, but the truth is it's 10. Um, no, that's that right. can be quite disappointing. Be quite disappointing. Yeah, I think it's it's wrong to start with the you know the the, the total cost claim, which is what you, you know what you said. It's the contract price minus minus this and that. That's wrong. And also the global claim, which is not far off that, but the, there's a little more science put into it. Both of those types of claim have this vulnerability that once you start unpicking it, um, as you say, John, you find that you, you know your 50 million claim is nowhere near. Um, but it's always better to know that before you in front of the tribunal than <laughs> as you're in front of the tribunal. Yeah. So I think to, to 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 sort of sum up, there's an awful lot of money that's expended due to being on site longer. And 
delivering the job under conditions different to those that were anticipated when you entered into the contract. Yeah. It requires an enormous amount of uh, records, uh, accurate records to be able to demonstrate, get to those costs and demonstrate them. And there is no argument to say just because we've got an extension of time, we're entitled to some money. Yeah. That's a wrong premise to start from. The premise to start from is we've incurred costs because the other party are responsible for those costs, for us incurring those costs. And what are they? Yeah. You go from there. Yeah, that's right. Thank you once again, John. Okay, thanks, Alex. And I'll see you at the next podcast in which we're going to talk about variations and changes. <laughs>